Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Untold Civil War podcast. This month, we have another interview for you, and this time we are with Cody Engdahl. He is the author of a new series of historical fiction on the Civil War. Um, his first book is Rampage on the River. This uh, episode, we'll be discussing his book, historical fiction, and of course, Island Number 10 and the campaign on the Mississippi that remains untold. I hope you enjoy. Tonight, uh, I am with Cody Engdahl, newscaster, cook, YouTuber, musician, writer, published author, armchair historian, speaker, and even social media marketing expert. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Pretty much done everything under the sun. Um, but tonight, we'll be specifically focusing on your new series, uh, The Second Michigan Cavalry Chronicles. Um, we'll be looking at the uh, at Civil War historical fiction and, of course, learning more about the untold battle of Island Number 10 and that early campaign on the banks of the Mississippi. Um, so thank you for coming on the show. Um, welcome. I'm glad we could finally do this. Hey, Paul, thank you. I'm, I'm really excited about it, and I'm a big fan of the show already. I've been listening uh, to all your to your episodes so far, and the last one was pretty great. So uh, I'm very excited to be uh, part of your, your podcast. I really appreciate that. really appreciate that. Um, I guess we'll just dive right in. Like I've said, you've done everything under the sun, but what got you into the historical fiction writing? You, you know what? I've always been into it. I was never really into sports, although there's nothing wrong with that. I wasn't into cars. I was into swords and muskets from a very early age. I was an early reader, and the majority of what I read is almost all either historical fiction or actual history. So when I decided to write, you write to your strengths and you write to what you know. And so I decided that this was the path that I wanted to take. I know that writing historical fiction is is definitely not easy. Um, there's a lot of research that goes into it. But do you think that there is some advantages of historical fiction over nonfiction, maybe getting people excited about uh, history, um, reaching out to you know more people? The big professor's book with all the footnotes, that might be a little daunting for the person who's just getting into history or the Civil War specifically. But historical fiction, I think it does give people a nice stepping stone. Absolutely. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I would say that historical fiction is kind of like the sugar with the medicine. You know, when you were a kid, uh, your mom would like take an aspirin and crush it up and put some sugar and some water so that it goes down. You know that song from, what's the musical? There's a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. So right, I right, think, right, Mary Poppins. Right, you know? So I think if... And, and I think because of that, as a historical novelist, you have a big, maybe, I wouldn't say a bigger, but you have a big obligation and responsibility to make sure that you get the history absolutely correct. Because in a lot of ways, for some people, this is the only place they're going to get it. And I've seen right. historical novelists who, you know, they, they fudge too much with it, which is always disappointing because then if one thing's wrong then what else is wrong? And especially with the Civil War, Paul, as you probably know, the Civil War is probably one of the most studied 
genres or studied eras in in all of U.S. history, and even internationally, there are there are Civil War reenactors, American Civil War reenactors, all over Europe and in the U.K. And these people are experts. And I've done author talks where you have to go in front and talk to them. You get something wrong, they probably know more than than I do. Then you know, so you have to make sure that when you write this stuff, that the the historical part of it is absolutely immaculate. And and the way I look at it is that the real history is the canvas in which I paint the rest of my story. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. Um, believe it or not, I've actually had people that I've invited onto the show, and I know that they have great knowledge on the Civil War. And, you know, I, their words, not mine, they said, you know, I'd love to come on the show, but the reenacting community is tough. And, you know, that pressure of getting up there and like, oh, I might say something wrong and, you know, I'll, I'll just never hear the end of it, especially right. in front of my peers or people I look up to. It takes a lot of courage to step up. So um, it can be daunting for sure. But you, as you were talking about, you know, there's a lot of you have to get everything right. And so historical fiction is not something you can just write off off the top of your head. You've got to do a lot of research, primary sources. Um, what sources did you use for this, uh, this series? You know, I was very lucky when I started researching for it, and we'll go into why I picked the second Michigan, but one of the big, like, I didn't know it existed until I started working on this, was a, a very rare regimental memoir by Marshall Thatcher. I don't know if you've heard of this book. It's called A Hundred Battles in the West. St. Louis to Atlanta, 1861 to 65, the 2nd Mission Cavalry. And this guy, he was a an officer in the 2nd Michigan, and he pretty much kept a journal through the entire war. And then you've, you've heard of the Sam Watkins book, right? Uh, Company H, the sideshow. Right. Yeah, I mean, every that's one of the best uh, regimental memoirs. This is the 2nd Michigan's version of that. And uh, actually, I've used both those books because, interesting enough, Sam, Sam Watkins, who was in the 1st Tennessee, he's at a lot of the same battles that Marshall Thatcher was in. So when I'm looking for color, uh, when, I'm, when I'm looking for not so much the facts, but what it was like to be one of those men, those are the two biggest sources that I, I've been able to use. And both of them, it's interesting, too, because, you know, when you read Watkins, it, it, you know, he's got a very colloquial, very conversational way of talking where you feel like you're just sitting on his front porch in a rocking chair listening to him, where Thatcher is college educated. He's a he's an officer. And so they have different voices. And of course, one's a Yankee. The other one's a rebel. So they have different voices and different perspectives uh, of the same battle. So that was a lot of help. And then in the first book, which is called uh, Rampage on the River, the Battle for Island Number 10, uh, I found a great book, uh, Larry Daniel and Lynn Bach. The, the book is called Island Number 10, The Struggle for the Mississippi Valley. That was uh, a, a great book. It actually was, it wasn't too long. It was only about 200 pages, but it was very concise and it, it, it took you through all the steps of the battle. That helped out a lot. In my second book, uh, I worked... A, a lot with a book called 
Perryville, this grand havoc of battle by Kenneth No, and then a lot of other things. It's so much more than I could name right now. But one of the things, like like we said, you have to build credibility with your readers. So like writing an actual nonfiction book, I, I have a list of my sources in the back of each one of my books. So like if someone says, I want to know more, um, for example, Nathan Bedford Forrest is in both of my books and he has a, a big role in them. And of course, that guy, there's a lot of controversy about him. So you have right. to absolutely nail it. So uh, Hearst has a um, what is his name? Jack Hearst has a great book on Nathan. I, actually, I got two of them. Uh, one's called Born to Battle and the other one's called, I think it's just called Forrest or Nathan Bedford Forrest. But uh, and, and then just there, there are other there are other memoirs that I look at, like guys that rode with Custer. And uh, I mean, I'm lucky that we have a great library here in Nashville that I can just get stacks of books and bring them home. And of course, then there's just online research. There's podcasts like yours. Uh, there's some other podcasts out there I listen to. There's also a, a great resource. And I don't if you're not on it, you should be. It's called CivilWarTalks.com, I think. Is it .com? I have it in the oh, back. yes. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yes. Oh, my God. You know, you just you can ask the dumbest question, just the dumbest questions. Like, uh, what kind of shoes did uh, the second Michigan have? And you'll have like 13 experts give you a dissertation on it within a day. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With sources and everything. So and, and it's it's one of the reasons why I, I chose to, to work in the, the American Civil War on top of my own passion for it. The, the resources are there. They're there. Uh, I mean, you have to do some work. But as you can see in, in your own work that. There's so much out there, and of course, there's so much more to, to research, but a lot of work has been done. I have to add to that. Um, you do have Nathan Bedford Forrest in there. You do have Beauregard. You do have the big names in there. Yes, but, sir. Uh, just for the – I read the book. I loved it. Thank um, you. But just for the um, uh, listeners, but you go into detail. I mean, here's a name that not everyone would know, but Captain – Chester Newman, right? Yeah. And these are names that you've reached into history and pulled out, you know, that people wouldn't even know. But yes, that is a real character, right? Yes, sir. And and the thing is, is like some of the big historical ones, like like Forrest or John Pope, uh, I those guys because there's so much about them. I actually tried to use some of their real dialogue, some of the real quotes attributed to them. In when they talk with my fictional characters or in some of the scenes to make them as authentic as possible. Chester E. Newman is one of my favorite characters, and I and I explain this every not putting myself amongst the ranks of good historical novels, but every good historical fiction author will put in the end of their book a, a, a part that's called the author's note or historical note, and it'll tell you. Okay, this is uh, this is what's real. The, these are the things that are my invention. And Chester, the only thing I actually know about him is that Thatcher in his book A Hundred Battles says he wore a stunning hat, and that's it. That's all I got on him. So I sketched a man that was full of panache and bravado, because only a man that was cocksure and full of himself would wear a 
a hat that right. Thatcher would call a stunning hat. So, uh, so that and guys like that, some some of the people that are actually in H Company, which is where my main character is, Carl. Uh, the, those names are pulled from those rosters, but I've colored those guys in the way I think they would be. Whereas guys like Forrest or or Pope, those guys are as close to how we know they are. And not just the people, but uh, I'm, I'm curious about the locations. Um, some of these locations, I, I don't know how, how many are still there or you can still see today. I know you mentioned Fort Wayne. Um, one of my favorites was the, the little patch of land on the Detroit River, I think. Yes. The dueling. Um, yes. I don't know. Was that real? Yeah. It's, yeah. In, in fact, it's uh, uh, Belle Isle. There is a uh, – there is a uh, – it, it's there's a bridge that goes from it's it's right downtown Detroit and it's amazing because as you know Detroit is a metropolis much like New York where you live uh, and when you're downtown uh, you know you've driven like an hour through city to get to the river and on the other side of the river is Windsor uh, Canada and there's an island that's just oh god maybe a couple hundred yards off the shore and it's a wildlife preserve these days and it's really neat because you can go there and take just stunning pictures of the Detroit skyline. And there's deer and woods there. And it, it's it's funny because you, you're like in such an in urban environment. And then I guess it's a lot like Central Park would be in New York. Uh, now, I didn't have my characters row across. And, and, and a lot of people did for duels. They would row over there because they would stay away from the coppers. But I had my guys... Uh, fight on the shore across so that I wouldn't have to go through the mechanics of them getting into a boat and then being arrested by police that would show up in a boat as well. But yeah, you can go there today. Actually going to these locations, I think does bring history alive, make you really understand, especially the battlefield. You can read something, you can see the maps, but until you see the lay of the land, you don't really understand what's going on. I, absolutely. I Two of the chapters deal with the Battle of Fort Donaldson, and uh, that is about an hour drive from where I live in Nashville. It's on the Cumberland River, and you know I've read descriptions because uh, it's a well-documented battle. But if you go there, it's a, it's a great park, and the battlements are still there. They have, I think, replica uh, cannon, but you can stand on on the battlements there and look down on the river. And you can see the, the the bend in the river, and and it's it's one thing to read about it, and to try to imagine it in your mind's eye. But when you stand up there next to those cannons, and you look down the river, and you can imagine those huge black ironclad gunboats belching black hideous smoke and steam and fire coming around the band, bringing destruction with them. I mean, I, I just imagine how terrifying that is. And so standing out there myself, I was, I was able to then write the way that I thought it would be to, to, to witness that. Speaking about settings, why do you think the Civil War as a setting makes good historical fiction? Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, uh, like your listeners will probably know, it's uh, it's fascinating and it's people just love it. Like I said, it's one of the it's one of the most studied events in history, at least in the U.S. history. There are 
literally thousands of, and I know because I've liked them all on Facebook, thousands of Civil War roundtables, sons of Confederate veterans, sons of Union veterans. Uh, there are uh, reenactment troops everywhere. So, so there's a uh, there, there's a demand for it. And I think also what makes it very interesting is that in many of our wars, uh, it, for, at least for Americans, we were always fighting people that were somewhat different from us. Um, even the Germans were very different people uh, in World War II than, than we were uh, used to seeing. But when we fought the American Civil War, we were fighting, you know, we were fighting ourselves. And, you know, a lot of people make a big stink about North versus South. I don't typically see it that way because there are plenty of uh, they call copperheads or plenty of. Oh, very true. Yeah. Fighting for the South. And there are plenty of Southern uh, officers who stayed loyal to the Union who fought for the North. And so I see it more as a a, a Confederacy versus Unionist uh, battle. But but. What's interesting is to see people who are very much alike, very much the same. I mean, there is there is cultural differences for sure. I'm a Yankee living down in the South. I can tell you every day there are cultural di differences. But it's <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying like I think um, in some ways, you know, maybe because of even racist overtones. Sometimes when we fight wars like in the Middle East or in Vietnam we're able to like compartmentalize and make the, the enemy some kind of other people where in the civil war, we were looking at a mirror and fighting, uh, fighting against a mirror. And that's really what I wanted to write to because the war, there's so many just great stories of, you know, brother versus brother, son versus father, um, you know, friends being separated. And that's kind of what I wrote to, and I'm a, I don't know if you, you see it in it, but I'm a big fan of Alexander Duma. I wrote The uh, Three Musketeers. And if you get past his first book, because uh, there's like five and each one's like 1,200 pages, uh, the the four main characters, there's actually four, uh, they they end up, you know, most of them, the, the three original musketeers leave the musketeers and D'Artagnan is the only one that stays in. And throughout like the next 40 years in which these books takes place, these friends end up on opposite sides of conflicts. And so they are always being challenged with their friendship, but also the loyalty to whatever cause that they're fighting for. And I just love that dynamic. And that was the idea behind my book. I didn't necessarily want it to make it a Yankee versus rebel thing or Northerner versus Southerner. I wanted to have two friends, Carl and Kyle, and talk about how their friends in the beginning, how their paths go separate ways, but yet at some point their paths then cross again on the battlefield. You know, and that is a great um, segue into my next question. Just real quick, I've read the book, I love it, but for our listeners, can you tell them, you know, this first book at least, what is Rampage on, on the River about? Who is Carl? Um, what adventures is he about to embark on? Okay, so the book uh, starts off with uh, friends in Detroit. There's three of them. One is uh, one is from Detroit. The other one is a uh, Southern kid who's up there going to school, which was quite common. I have another book, and I, I, I don't have the title uh, with me right now, but 
one of the surgeons from the second Michigan wrote about this, that uh, at the beginning of the war, uh, kids that were going to U of M, there were a lot of Southerners that went up north to get an education and then come back down south. And when the war broke out and everybody thought it was just going to be like you know 90 days and be back, uh, the kids from the south uh, went home and they had a big party for them. And all their northern friends walked them to the station in downtown Detroit, said, you know, hey, good goodbye and good luck and, you know, keep your head down. And everybody thought like this wasn't going to be a big thing that we're, we're all going to be friends. Of course, they didn't realize just the horrors that were going to follow for the next uh, next four years. So I'm taking too much time. OK, this, this real quick. So they're best friends. Uh, there's actually three of them. There's also Francis, who is a free black man, uh, upper class, which existed in Detroit because they came all the way back from like the time when Detroit was owned by the French, who this kid's never even known what it's like to be a slave or, or no one in his family knows what it's like. And so in the beginning of the book, Kyle is going off to war and going back home because he's got because of duty and they say goodbye and he goes off and Carl ends up getting in trouble and ends up being forced into the uh, into the U.S. or the Michigan Second uh, Regiment, Cavalry Regiment, and uh, they both kind of end up uh, encountering each other again at the uh, during the campaign of Island Number Ten in New Madrid, and their friendship is stronger, I guess, than than the overall conflict that they're sucked into, and 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 I, and I like. I like to think about that I'm writing a human story. It's not so much this side versus that side. It's about people, real people who get caught up in the madness of it. And that definitely comes out in the book. Thank you. So why exactly do you choose the second Michigan to tell this story? It's I. It was my first novel, and I wanted to write – you know, I wanted to go right to my strength. So I wanted to write something that was very familiar to me. So I am from Detroit and I joined the army and I ended up in Tennessee. And so I looked for a regiment that would do that, that would that would muster in Detroit and end up fighting in the Battle of Nashville, which, by the way, um, uh, spoiler alert, that's where the third book is going to end at the Battle of Nashville, which is pretty much the end of major military operations in the West. And uh, I wanted to do a cavalry unit because if you're in the infantry or artillery, you are either fighting, marching, or encamped. There's not a lot of opportunity to have those characters have adventures. So uh, I picked the Michigan second. I, I, I tell you the truth, Paul, I, I really lucked out because I kind of arbitrarily picked them, but the more I studied about them, the more unique and fascinating they are. Uh, a couple of things, like they're one of the only units that use, uses the Colt revolving rifle. Uh, most of the other units were using the, you know, the Springfield uh, single shot muzzle loading rifles. Right. They, they, their trajectory made it so that it fit a trilogy very easily. So the first book goes all the way up to the Battle of Island Number 10. Uh, the second book, which is actually going to be available to, well, I don't know when this airs, but it should be available now uh, when it airs. Uh, that is the uh, Perils of Perryville. And that is 
the Battle of Perryville in Kentucky, which is a very important battle. It basically decides the um, it def the fate of Kentucky for the rest of the war. Um, is Kentucky going to fall into the Confederacy or stay in the Union? This is the battle that that decides that. And then the third book, which uh, I'm about to start plotting out and writing, is the uh, Blood for Blood at Nashville. The uh, the first book, Rampage on the River, uh, at, in the early part of the war, the key to the West was taking control of all the rivers. And so Grant uh, attacked Fort Henry, uh, took it. Actually, um, Flag Officer Foote did most of the work. Actually, the river did. <laughs> uh, Fort Henry, which is on the Tennessee River, uh, they, they had a fort there to block a, a Yankee invasion right there at the border. It wasn't really well set. And uh, when the Yankees did show up with their big gunboats, the river was flooding it. And the men that were trying to fight from Fort Henry were standing in waist deep water. Uh, they ended up having to surrender before Grant's forces could even get there. Fort Donelson, which is in my book, The Rampage on the River, uh, from basically the perspective of Kyle, the, the, the Tennessee kid, um, that was the next one, and that was the basically the fight to the Cumberland River, and uh, that was a that was a pretty good fight, and uh, the the Confederate guns there were able to uh, blast plunging fire on those gunboats and send them reeling back. It was small victory for them, and there's a lot of debate about whether they could have held that fort or not. Uh, but once that fell then the Yankees had control of the Tennessee River, the Cumberland. Now, the Cumberland, that was the doorway to Nashville. And when that happened, Albert Sidney Johnston, who's in charge of the Western troops for the Confederacy, realizes that he's been outflanked and he's got to scramble all his troops and tumble back down to Corinth. And the only thing left is the Mississippi River, which is the big one. And that's why uh, I think this battle here is one of the most important battles in the West, but no one ever talks about it. And and the reason why is because it's the absolute gateway into the Confederacy on the Mississippi River. Because where Island Number 10 was, it was on a 180 degree turn where the river uh, makes a hairpin turn, goes nine miles north, and makes a second hairpin turn where New Madrid is, and then shoots down all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. And where this double hairpin turn is, is right where Kentucky, Tennessee, and Missouri all meet. So if you if you imagine in the map in your head, Kentucky uh, on the north, uh, Tennessee below it, and then just to the west of both those is, is Missouri. And so the rebels realized that it, this was the place to stop them. You know, the Mississippi River was very important because all their commerce went through there. They're able to still get their their cotton and their tobacco down to New Orleans and sell it to France and England. Uh, also, the Federals needed the river to be able to uh, transport troops and, and supplies. And so it was very important to take it. So the rebels in that first turn was an island called Island Number 10. And the reason why it's called Island Number 10 is that the islands on the river are numbered from one to whatever, starting from where the Mississippi breaks away from the Ohio River. And so this was the 10th island on, uh, on the river. It was about a mile long and half a mile wide. And I think it was just like an old man and his 
single slave and the two lived there together farming. And it created a narrow chute in which a, a ironclad gunboat would have to slow down to make that turn. So the Confederates realized if we load up that island with batteries and along the shore, um, then we will create a gauntlet of fire and iron that no ship will be able to pass through. And so this is why uh, they decided to make their defense there. And it was also why the Federals realized that if before we go any further, we have to take out Isle Number Ten and New Madrid, which is on the other island or uh, the other the other bend. Um, one of the big reasons why I no one ever really talks about it because tact it, 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 strategically it was one of the most important battles. But the same time this happened, and it was pretty bloodless. Shiloh happened, and twenty three thousand combined casualties made for better. Uh, better headlines. And, and the interesting thing about Shiloh is that they make a big deal about it, and it is a big deal. Uh, most casualties, uh, American casualties up to that date, in fact, I think there were more casualties at Shiloh than all the American wars combined prior. Uh, but, not, but Shiloh didn't accomplish anything. The only thing that was accomplished is that the, the Federals were able to survive a surprise attack when they were almost wiped out. Right, they were able to hold on. They were um, able to hold on, yeah. But that's the difference with Island Number Ten, like you were saying, opening up the Mississippi River. Yes. For, and for uh, Union troops. Yeah, because once once they get past uh, past that, then they have all the way down to Fort Pillow, which is about thirty miles north of of uh, Memphis, and and so the the plan is is that uh, John Pope with his, uh, I think it's, is he calling his the Army of the Mississippi? The, the, the Federals like to name their, their armies after rivers, where the Confederates like to name their uh, after, after areas or after states. So the, the original plan is for Pope to take Island, I mean, New Madrid, which is on the second turn, and Flag Officer Foote was supposed to take uh, Island Number 10 with his gunships. Well, he... Uh, took quite a beating at the Battle of Fort Donelson. In fact, he himself, uh, ironically, was injured in the foot and was on crutches during most of the uh, Island Number 10 campaign. And he also, his his gunboats were uh, were damaged pretty badly, and so they had to go back up to Cairo, uh, spelled Cairo, but they, they call it Cairo, uh, to have those gunboats repaired uh, before he could come down. But... Uh, it took a lot of prodding to get him started. He wasn't he wasn't confident in attacking that island directly, so he instead hid his gunboats and his mortar rafts around the bend where they lobbed shells. And here's an interesting story about that. Uh, it's the only instance in the Western theater where hot air balloons were used for scouting. And there was a uh, a German man. I don't have his name in front of me, but he was an aeronaut who offered his he offered his services to Pope, who laughed at it, and then he went to Foote, and Foote says, yeah, let's do that. So they put uh, officers up in the bloom so they could watch the effect of the Union fire on, on the island. Uh, problem was is that, you know, they could shell it all day long, but they, they weren't getting, they really weren't getting anywhere with that. So Pope decides, okay, well, 
uh, I guess what we're going to have to do is uh, do this ourselves. So he takes his troops and marches a wide path, a wide arcing path to the west, way far from the uh, from the guns and the forts of, of New Madrid and attacks a, uh, a smaller village to the south on the river called Point Pleasant. And from there, he's able to start mounting his, uh, his gradual push from the south to New Madrid. And he has to, um, he has to wait till he gets his big siege guns. And uh, because he's afraid of, there are Confederate gunboats right on the river at New Madrid. And he thinks he can take the ground forces there but they will be shelled to pieces by those gunboats. And once again, he's asking Foote, can you send one of your gunships down to clear it out? And Foote says, no, I can't get past this island. So when Pope gets his big siege guns, he's like, okay, I think I got enough to do this. And so the, uh, the Federals uh, crawl up within about 400 yards of Fort Thompson. Fort Thompson is guarding the southern approach to New Madrid. And they start digging trenches and digging gun pits. And, and, uh, and during this time, the Confederates are uh, harassing and they have sharpshooters who are in picket lines that are only about 150 yards away. And uh, there's a couple funny stories. Uh, Gordon Granger is at this time, the Colonel of the second Michigan. And he, uh, there's stories about him. Thatcher talks about him walking along the heavy siege guns and personally setting the elevation and aiming them while cannonballs and bolts are flying all around and he's acting like <laughs> like nothing's happening while his men are ducking and cringing and wow. Granger's just at one point kind of annoyed brushes the dirt after a cannonball sprays them all with uh you know buries itself in the mud and sprays them all um some other guys weren't so lucky there's a, a story about a, a captain who uh, at that night went out to check on his pickets you know they they, they would dig gun um what do you call it gun holes uh gun pits for uh for the ford pickets to stand out there and watch and he, he went out there under the cover of night with his unlit uh um pipe in his mouth and he goes out there to check on his boys. They're like, hey, you guys okay? And they're like, any sign? And as they're telling him what they've seen, he lights his pipe and bam, bam, two bullets uh, strike him dead. Wow. That's in my book, too. Uh, but the the next day, uh, the Federals open up and start shelling uh, shelling the town. And the effect is almost immediately uh, immediate. They, they destroy a cannon in Fort Thompson. Uh, and kill the gunners and the men around it. Uh, one of them lands over in uh, Fort Bulkhead, which is to the north side of the town, um, right where the St. James Bayou is. Uh, um, they, uh, and, and interesting, interest, interest, interesting enough, the uh, there is a gunboat on there, and um, one of the uh, one of the cannonballs goes right through the pilot house and takes out the chief medical officer's legs. In one blow. Oh. Sprays all the other men with blood and gore. Yeah, I hope this isn't, you know, too uh, graphic for your viewers. <laughs> but after, and then, well, when, when the fog lifts around 10 o'clock in the morning, the Confederates start firing back. In fact, there's even um, reports of them picking up spent federal cannonballs and putting them in their own uh, 
their own cannons and firing back. And with some success, I think they hit a, a 24 pounder right on the muzzle, blew it up and uh, killed the men around it. Uh, there's another, there's talk about another ball taking, you know, a lot of times the cannonball, the solid shots, they don't fly straight. They bound, uh, they'll bound across the, you know, like a skipping stone. And one took a, a, a lucky or unlucky hop into a trench and ricocheted off the walls and mangled like six or seven men in there. Uh, but finally, uh, as darkness comes, you know, a lot of the civil war action would stop at night cause they just didn't have, you know, good ways of uh fighting like we do now illuminating at night night vision all that and uh, uh storm comes in and it starts raining like crazy thunder and lightning and the federals are in their in their trenches trying to stay warm and try, trying to stay dry and they uh they can oh this is a wild story I know. oh it's a great story and they can hear uh, uh steam engines on the river and every once in a while when the lightning flashes they can see troop transports and they're like, they're reinforcing, they're reinforcing, we're, we're screwed. And um, and when dawn comes, uh, the Federals send out, I think it's uh, the first U.S. infantry, they send out about four companies to go take the walls at Fort Thompson. And these men, um, you know, they, they, they get out of their trench and they start, you know, trotting in a, in a, in a battle line towards these earthen walls. And they're just waiting, waiting for the, you know, the, the rebels to start firing on them. And, and they don't, and they get all the way up there and nothing happens. And they, they, they climb over the walls and they realize that the Confederates had evacuated overnight. And when they were hearing those ships, those were transport boats, picking up the men and shuttling them back to, uh, uh, to Island Number Ten because they knew they couldn't hold they couldn't hold New Madrid anymore, and uh, in fact a funny story and it's in my book too they found two privates sleeping, and some people think those privates might have been deserters, uh, some people think that I tend to think that they were pickets that fell asleep and and, and they forgot to wake them up. To, <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. So they took those guys prisoner. And um, and now they got New Madrid. And the problem is foot still won't move. And Washington is wiring saying you need to move. Pope is begging. I need your help because what Pope wants to do is now ferry his men across the river so that they can uh, attack those batteries on the Tennessee shore. But uh, Pope Pope doesn't want to move his boats on island number 10 until I'm sorry, Foote doesn't want to move his boats until Pope has cleared out those batteries, but Pope doesn't want to cross the river until um, Foote can provide a gunboat to escort them because those men get on transports and they're sitting ducks crossing the river. They'll get blown to bits. And so finally, uh, well, the first thing they try to do is build a, a canal uh, because the, the river is very twisty. And there's a there's a little bayou to the north, and there's a bayou that comes that uh, right by where the the town is, and so they realize there's a lot of wetland in there that they can get in there and dig a uh, a canal out, and so they have these uh, I mean it's an amazing uh, engineering feat. They get in there and they're they they got these saw rafts, this, these huge underwater saws that operate like a seesaw. Like there's a guy on, 
either side with a counter lever and then under the water about eight or 12 feet deep this bowed saw goes from one end to the other and they're able to cut down tr under you know trees that are growing you know their 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 trunks are eight feet deep in the water and uh they finally do this it takes several weeks huge operation but they still can't get the gunboats through the canal because the gun gunboats are, are too heavy uh, but they can supply they can now send supply ships so at least they can get rations and supplies to the men at new madrid so finally after all this haranguing foot says okay uh, even his own men are like, you got to let us do, do it. So he gets a volunteer and the Carondelet is a beautiful ship. It's, uh, if you've ever seen, I, I would look it up just look up the ship. I, I love how these things, uh, they call them turtles, big iron beasts, you know, and, uh, he's like, I'm going to make the run. And so they decide they're going to do it on a, uh, moonless night. And uh, and the, it, two nights before, actually, this is not in the book. I just didn't have a place for it. But um, uh, Foot authorizes a, a covert mission. They get five long boats. Those are the long rowing boats. And they get 50 soldiers um, and 50 sailors. And they row under the cover of night to the Tennessee side uh, and attack a gun battery where there's just a couple pickets guarding them. The, uh, the pickets there fire on the Federals and then run off the, the tell, you know, the, the call the alarm and the Federals get out and spike those guns. You know, they take uh, nails or spikes and they they uh, they pound them through the touch holes to make the guns useless and then get in the boats before the Confederates can show up in force to fight them off. But it's still not enough. There's still plenty of uh, gun batteries along the river and on the island. So when they decide to do the night run with the car on delay, they uh, they fortify it. They put chains and planks on on all the uh, uh, on the decks because the decks are wood, but the sides are iron. And uh, they 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 try to muffle the the engines to have the exhaust come out the back instead of the chimneys. They call them chimneys. We call them smokestacks now. And uh, they brought on a bunch of sharpshooters, about 20 sharpshooters, to stand on the deck to fire on any uh, uh, rebel guns, any gun batteries on the shore or the island. And then right around 10 o'clock at night, they douse all their lights and they, they make the run. And what they're going to do is they're going to run right at the island. And, uh, and then when they get about 300 yards off it, they're going to make a hard right. And hopefully they get away from the guns before they get blown out of the water. Well... A couple things happen. It starts out all right, but when they muffled those chimneys, what happened was it caused the soot to, to build up in the in in the in the smokestacks, and they caught on fire. And all of a sudden, like they're halfway there, and they start shooting like 12 foot flames out of the out of the smokestacks. So the Confederates all of a sudden yeah. they see it, you know, so they start firing on them. But it's dark and they're hard to hit. And the other thing is, is that Carondelet is kind of going blind and they have a navigator who literally has like a weight and a rope and he's he's uh, testing the depth as they're going. And they're not quite sure because it's dark. It's ink, ink, inky black. It's not like they had big spotlights back then. And the lightning flashed and all of a sudden they realized, oh, my God, we're about to like land on shore and there's a battery right in front of us. And I think the Confederates were, were surprised by it, too. And they fired on the car on delay, but I, I pretty much point blank range. But because they weren't sure how close it was, their guns were too elevated and the cannonballs went about 20 feet over their 
their their smokestacks. So um, the the car in delay makes a hard right and they make it through. And it was a, it was a big victory. It was a big write up in the paper. Um, a couple nights later, they sent Pittsburgh down, and uh, same thing. They make it through. And then once those gunboats are past Island Number Ten, now they can go to work and they start just going up and just like uh, clockwork, just going up and down the shore, just destroying rebel batteries. And these you know batteries are firing on the gunboats. Uh, their 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 cannonballs are just bouncing off the uh, the iron plating, and the uh, these big monsters just come up pull right up in front of them and just blast them into oblivion and so uh, it's finally done and they decide okay a coordinated attack and uh uh the day comes and pope starts loading up his uh, men onto transports with the two gunboats to protect them and foot starts his assault on island number 10 and the idea if you can imagine it, on the map what, what what it creates is kind of like a, a narrow strip of land because uh, just uh, on the other side of the shore is Real Foot Lake, which is in a different shape now, but it created a very narrow chute. So as the the army crosses to the south and starts pushing northward towards Tiptonville, the Navy comes in from the north and starts pushing southward. And so all those fleeing Confederates run right into the hands of the uh, of the uh, Federals. And it was like shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, and most of them, most of them surrendered almost immediately. Uh, some of them uh, put up some a bit of a fight here and there. Some of them tried to get across Real Foot Lake. Some did successfully. Others uh, drowned in the lake. It was a general panic. And the next day, the uh, um, the commander surrendered to to Pope. And I think the commander who was at Island Number Ten surrendered to. Um, the garrison island number 10 surrendered to foot and when they were surrendering it, it became apparent when you looked at these men there were boys and old men uh some of them most of them didn't have shoes they were starving they were sick uh some of them literally had nothing but blankets to cover themselves and uh what happened and what the federals didn't know until that point is that when island number 10 i'm sorry when new madrid fell uh, PTG Beauregard, who is Sidney Johnson's right-hand man, he's second command in the West, he realizes that there's no holding Island Number 10. It, it's um, so, but he wants to make the Federals think that they're still there in force. So he calls most of their troops back to Corinth and leaves just a small, just enough men to man some of the cannons to keep Pope busy. And why? Because there are three federal armies crawling around right now. There's Pope's army, there's Grant's army, and there's Buell's army. And Grant's army is coming down the Tennessee to Pittsburgh Landing. And the hope is at Shiloh that that the Confederates can give a knockout punch to Grant before Pope can get there and Buell. Because once all three of those armies combine, it'll be an unstoppable force. It'll be 100,000 men uh, against 40,000 rebels. So uh, so the whole thing was a ploy to keep Pope busy uh, so that he couldn't team up with uh, Grant when they had their surprise attack at Shiloh. And it was a, it was a great tactical victory for the Federals because now they, they opened the door. I mean, this is literally the doorway into the Confederacy because the Confederacy starts with Tennessee. 
and it's the doorway into the south all the way down to the Mississippi. Um, but and there were very few, I think less than 100 uh, federal casualties in the whole campaign. Uh, but this like I think right around the same day or the day after Shiloh happened. And so that's the one that we all know about. What an amazing campaign. What an it effort is. on both sides. It is, yeah. Um, you know, that's, you know the, the daring of, of the sailors and soldiers on the Union side and then the daring of the end of Confederates. Um, oftentimes, people talk about the Civil War as being the first modern war. Yeah. You know, you mentioned trenches. Yes. Um, which people don't usually think of when they think of Civil War. They think of just lines of soldiers, you yes. know, going on at it. Um, you mentioned repeating arms for the 2nd Michigan with their Colt um, rifles. Yes. You mentioned uh, sort of combined operations. We don't really think of that, you know, Navy and and the Army. Um, and also, I, I kind of think it's funny, you know, we think of – when we think of digits in the name of a battle, you know, you think of Hill 180, Korea, you know, you don't right. think island number 10, right? Um, <laughs> what do you think about that as far as the Civil War being sort of a modern war, the first time we see a modern war in that sense? Absolutely. It's kind of a crossroads of technology. And one of the things to me that's really frustrating about the war, and uh, and we find this uh, in it, the same lessons uh, in World War One as well, is that when you're at a crossroads of technology where your your officers, your generals are people who are veterans of a war that happened 20 years ago. And so a lot of the, you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, senior officers in, in the Civil War fought in the Mexican War and uh, technology had changed. And a couple of things. Uh, one of the, one of the biggest changes is is the rifle. And now rifles had been around. Uh, the, the British were using them uh, to some degree against Napoleon. But, uh, you know, and to your viewers who don't uh, know or your listeners, uh, the difference between a smoothbore uh, musket and a, and a rifled musket is that a smoothbore, like it says, it, it's got a, it's a smooth barrel and it shoots a round ball. Um, a rifle means that it has grooves cut into the inside of the barrel and shooting a conical bullet. That spit. Now you still have to pour um, black powder in there and, and shove the. They call him Mini Ball after the man who named. It's not because it's small. It's because his name is Mine. Um, you got to shove that bullet down in there. But here's the difference: is that you know, like in the Revolutionary War, we see all the guys. They all kind of stand uh, in a group and then shoot at the same. And they, I mean, it's maddening. They like stand and and trade shots with each other. It's because the muskets are not very uh, are not very accurate. Uh, they're not really effective for at more than, uh, you know, maybe 50, 100 yards uh, and not very. It, 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 so the only way you can fight effectively with that is to do volley fire where the whole group of men stand together and shoot and hope some of your bullets hit the other guys. And they the same way with them. The the rifle changed everything because a rifle has more uh, more power, more velocity, and more accuracy. Where now you can actually aim at someone who's 400 yards away and hit them, you know, four football fields. And one of the things it did, the Civil War did, was nullify cavalry the way they had been used up to that point. Uh, you know, the cavalry goes all the way back to the, to, you know, the Romans. I think they learned it from. Um, uh, the, the, I, I know the Persians had cavalry, and the Romans. 
just picked up things from everybody they conquered. Uh, but, you know, putting men on horses and making them mobile and you could break up infantry uh, 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 infantry units that are, you know, formations by running men with lances at them. And even with muskets, it was you could still do it because they weren't very accurate. They might only get off like one or two shots before you're on top of them with your sabers hacking them to pieces. But with the rifle. You could start blowing away those cavalrymen before they're even 400 yards away. And so it kind of killed. There were still some cavalry charges, uh, but the glorious cavalry charge of the Napoleonic age was dead. Uh, uh, so for the most part, ca uh, cavalry was used for raiding, uh, for foraging, which is basically just stealing food from people's farms. Uh, they were used for scouting and screening meaning like they would they would ride along lengths uh inside and outside a uh, a marching uh, a marching infantry to protect them from the other guys scouts uh so uh, and then automation like all of a sudden you know you think about before the steam engine uh the fastest anybody could ever travel on this earth was either as fast as a horse could run and that horse isn't going to run for very long you can't run a horse at a full gallop for four hours, like you can drive a car in between gas stops uh, or or on a boat. And even the steam engines are only going to do about six knots. They might, you know, might a little better than a sail. Uh, basically, the steam engine at that time, it just makes it so you don't need a sail. Uh, so but all of a sudden now you can put men on a train and run a train at 35 miles an hour uh, when. Right. When, so so logistics change, uh, moving men change, war becomes more mobile. Now they also start digging in, um, which you know has its its ups and downs, and then we'll see that come to a fruition in World War One, uh, where it just becomes absolute stalemate. And it wasn't until uh, World War Two where the uh, the Germans had figured out, you know, the Germans had the benefit of losing World War One, and and so they went back to the drawing board and came up with the Blitzkrieg, a a fast moving mobile. Uh, fighting force where the uh, the allies were wait well, hey, we beat them in World War One we'll do the same thing it didn't work it took a long time before everybody yep. caught up so we we're always at a crossroads where new technology is being introduced to old men who think that they're going to fight the war they fought 20 years ago. With that we're we're sort of coming towards the end of this uh, interview here. Yeah. Um, but before. I, I let you go. I, I have to ask a last two questions here. Uh, first of all, you know, you have Rampage on the River is out. Yes. Uh, Perils of Perryville is gonna, yes, going to be out tomorrow. When this airs, it will be out. Yep. Um, do you have any advice for aspiring writers out there? Sure. In fact, I have a whole book called How to Write, Publish, and Market Your Novel. <laughs> but, there you go. Go to Amazon. Purchase that. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so if you if you look me up, um, you know, I, I have four books out, and that's one, one of them. Uh, I I would say this. Uh, for, first of all, you can do it. It just you just got to do the work. It's work. And so, uh, two things is. It's a lot easier to write if you know what you're writing to. So I plot, not so tightly that I can't make changes along the way. But when I came up with my series, I, I plotted out the overall arc of the series. And then I plot out each book. And then when I start each chapter, I plot that out. 
so that I, you know, I don't suffer from writer's block because I know where I'm going because I've done the, I've done a little bit of work on the, on the front end to make it easier on the back end. But, uh, you know, if you're dreaming about writing a book, you can do it, man. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's not rocket surgery as I like to mix my metaphors. Uh, uh, it's just a matter of deciding, you know, like for me, I, I have a half written novel that I lost in a, uh, in a hard drive crash 20 years ago. Um, oh, uh, and I was, yeah, it sucked, but, but, you know, uh, I got to a point in my life where I said, you know what, uh, if I don't do it now, it's never going to happen. So if I don't do it now, I need to shut up and stop telling people that one day I'm going to write a book. And so I did it. And I think that if you really want to do it, uh, you can, I mean, if you can, if, if, you've got fundamental skills of communication, you can write a book. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I mean, not to, not to be too much of a salesman, but check out my book about how to write a, a publish and market a novel. It's actually uh, pretty cheap. I sell it for five bucks. Um, it's a, it's actually a series of articles. I, I wrote my blog. Yeah. And, and with that, I, I would ask, definitely from reading your stuff is that, and once you write that book, the work doesn't stop, right? You've got to market that book. Right. That's the big, yeah. And unfortunately for me, I love Mark. I came from it. I, I, you know, I, I had an advertising agency in Detroit. I wrote a lot of ad campaigns and commercials and I enjoy social media marketing and all that. I know a lot of writers. I happen to be an introvert, but, um, but it's means I don't like to leave my house, but I love to like push my books on social media. But a lot of writers, you know, they, they're not comfortable with that part of it. And I get that, I do. Um, but, you know, these days there's so much out there. You can do all your research online. Um, there's resources and then you can sell it. Uh, there's, you know, like when I decided to write the Civil War, I went and liked every single group and page about the Civil War on Facebook and every day, I have a, my alarm goes up at 9:30 and 2:30, and when that goes off, I take uh, I, I post an ad about my book on one of those pages. Uh, so yes, it's a constant circle of work. And and where can people get a copy of, of whether they want to know how to write a book, whether they want to learn more about the Second Michigan and and uh, Rampage on the River, Perils Perilville, where can they get all these books? Yeah, I'm on uh, I'm on Amazon. Uh, I, I'll forward over there. I have an author's page and what I'll do is I'll send you the link. I have a universal link, um, through book linker. And I think if you're selling books, you should have one too on Amazon. Cause, uh, basically, uh, if you click on that link and you're in the UK, it'll take you to my author's page in the UK or the one in Germany or in Japan or here in the U S oh, wow. Australia. So great. Cause when I first started doing this, I had to give like 20 links. Uh, so that, you know, if somebody in Argentina wants my book, there's a link for him. Well, now just with one link, it'll take people to, uh, uh, anywhere they are in the world, it'll take them to their respective Amazon page. Also your social media, you do have Facebook, right? Instagram. I'm on, yeah, I'm on the, all the big ones. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, uh, YouTube, uh, Twitter. The, my biggest one is probably Facebook and, okay. Uh, I am Cody C. Engdahl. There's a Cody L. Engdahl who lives in Texas that we became friends because we have the same name and we kept like having people friend us from the other <laughs> side. And this is what's wild. He's 10 days younger than me. I mean, we, we've lived oh, like wow. lives. 
Yeah, I think there's only like three Cody Angles that I know of in the United States. So I'll tell you this. If you um, if you look up my name, Cody C, and the last name is E-N-G-D as in David, A-H-L, I'm the only guy selling uh, books. Uh, there might be another Angle, but I'm the, co- the only Cody Angle selling books on Amazon. The real Angle, yeah. Okay. I'm the real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I'll definitely, in the description, description of this podcast i'm gonna put up some links on there so okay. when people uh, w- uh listen to the podcast they'll be able to click on um click on that and, and get direct access to you um and and your excellent. amazon links as well excellent excellent yeah i'll send you all that stuff tonight i appreciate it appreciate it. well uh I, I think that brings us towards the end here uh okay. thank you so much for coming on the podcast it really does mean a lot to to have you sit down and, and talk about this I hope you have a, a good night and happy birthday, right? Yeah, yeah. Tomorrow? Uh, yes, sir. Enjoy your birthday. Yeah, I'm going to be 21. Oh, fan- yes, fantastic. Yeah, I'm finally going to go to the bar. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, have Paul, a good thank one. You. You good too. Night, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Untold Civil War podcast. As usual, I'd like to give a shout out to Craig Duncan for allowing me to use his music on this podcast. Now, if you haven't already, please go ahead and follow us on the Untold Civil War podcast Instagram page. There you'll get all sorts of updates, behind-the-scenes info, and images that pertain to every individual episode. You'll be able to message me there directly about ideas for future episodes or any other comments. You can also email me directly at untoldcivilwarpodcast at gmail.com. So bye for now. And please tune in next month for our next episode.